Amen and amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. I know that this is a passage that gets preached over and over and over again, but it's good for us to look at. Some of you got that joke. We, uh, we, we were talking in the office, Nathan and I were talking in the office this week, and both of us were like, have you ever heard of a sermon on Nahum? And then we Googled it, and there's not much out there. Um, but uh, what a book, uh, and what, what a message Nahum brings to us. It, the name Nahum means comfort, um, and uh, it may not look that way on the surface, but I am excited for us to go through Nahum and to see the comfort that God provides um, and also to be reminded of our need for his comfort. Um, one other thing, quickly, as you're turning to Nahum, um, not this Wednesday. This Wednesday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, there will be no services. There's nothing going on uh, at church Wednesday night. Um, but the week after, we are starting a book study on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock called Praying the Bible um, by Donald Whitney. Um, and I would just encourage you, um, this book is an incredible introduction to how going through the scriptures and using the scriptures in our prayer life um, can just enliven that prayer life um, and bring a, a new fresh breath to it. And so I would just encourage you, we have those books for free. Uh, you can stop by the office and grab one. Um, but we would love for you to participate with us in that study. Again, not starting this Wednesday, but the Wednesday afterwards. Coming back to Nahum, though. Um, most of you um, know in some ways, uh, if you've been through the reading plan or you were talking about it this morning in Sunday school, Nahum is in many ways the follow-up to Jonah. Um, it's kind of Jonah part two um, and what happens there. And uh, so, again, I'm excited to, to come to this book that maybe many of us have not taken a great deal of time to look at and to study together um, and to hear a word from the Lord through it. And so, if you would, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning? Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 1, reading through the end of the first chapter. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against him? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. 
from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Father, we come to a passage that many of us would admit that we are not super familiar with, where we come to a part of your word that we have, as a whole, neglected, passed over. But Father, you have put it in this book because it has meaning, and it has power, and it has a message not for just the day of Nahum, but for our day as well. Father, I pray that as we look upon it, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be challenged by it, that it would allow allow our hearts to respond to you this morning. Father, thank you that you do choose to speak to us, that you do choose to have a relationship that you have bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we come to Nahum, it would probably be good for us to do just a quick review. As as I said, in many ways, Nahum is a follow-up to the book of Jonah. In Jonah, we see the prophet sent to Nineveh. God gives Jonah a message and says, you need to go to Nineveh and proclaim this message. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it was, uh, it was at the time, at the, the height of its glory. And it controlled an incredible expanse and it challenged all of the great empires around it and defeated many of them. It was also an incredibly brutal empire. And we'll get into that more just a little bit later, but... Jonah's desire to go to Nineveh was not all that great, and yet go he does, and he proclaims the message on behalf of God, and what happens is pretty remarkable. As he preaches this message of repentance, sure enough, from the least to the greatest, the people of Nineveh respond, and they do repent. They stop doing their evil ways. They begin to follow God, and God relents. He has grace and mercy upon them, but that doesn't last super long. Within probably less than a generation or so, Nineveh returns and the Assyrians return to their ways of war, to their brutality, to their bloodlust. And they begin to follow their own gods again and they begin to do their own thing again. Nineveh is at its height, the center of, of man's rebellion towards God. As such, they not only plague others, but they plague God's people. In fact, 
the Assyrians are the ones that would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel at some point splits in between two. They have the ten, king, the, the ten tribes to the north or Israel. The t- there's two and a half tribes that go south, and that is Judah. It, Assyria is the one that comes in and wipes the northern kingdom off the mat. Samir, Samaria, their capital is destroyed and flattened. Assyria would walk into Judah. They would conquer many cities and, and overrun them. But when they come to Jerusalem, God would defend his people and in a miraculous way and send the Assyrians packing. But there was the constant threat of trouble. There was the constant threat of defeat at the hands of the Assyrians and all that that meant with it. Nahum then is the message to Israel about Nineveh. And the message is one of comfort to Israel. It's a message that the Assyrians will not last forever. It's a message that the Assyrians will not go on forever. That their time of rain, their time of terror is coming to an end. Nineveh, or sorry, Nahum starts though with something interesting. He starts with a psalm about the attributes of God. When you look at verses 2 through verses, verse 8, that is actually a song. It doesn't look like that to us because we don't read it in the original language, but that's a song. And the song is about who God is, and it sets the tone for the rest of the book. For you to understand the rest of Nahum, chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, and chapter 3, then you need to understand some of the things that Nahum proclaims about God here in the beginning. All of these things, by the way, are unchanging things. They're attributes about that and descriptions of God that do not change. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, they remain the same. The first that we see there is righteousness. Now, we don't see the word righteousness, but we see some of the words in describing it. It says that the Lord is a jealous and an avenging God, that he is a wrathful God. Why is he those things? Why is he jealous? Why is he avenging? Why is he wrathful? Well, the underlining understanding is that it's because he's righteous, because he's perfect, because he's holy, he's set apart, he's different from everything else that we understand, and that God desires the righteous thing. He desires good. He desires that evil is punished. Now, for us, we read some of those things, and they seem like bad descriptors. Typically, if we describe an individual as being a jealous person, that would be not a compliment. That would be something that we would see as a bad thing, right? A bad descriptor of an individual. And certainly, that is true when we're describing human beings, because jealousy for a human, the majority of the time, comes out of where? It comes out of a place of selfishness. We see something that someone else has. We see something that someone else has accomplished or we see their popularity or we see their position in society or we see their wealth or whatever the case may be and we want that for ourselves and so we're jealous of them out of, again, a place of selfishness. And so that is a bad thing. There are times, though, that jealousy is warranted, that it's right, okay, between my wife and I. There is a desire, I have a desire for my wife's affection and attention. And in the same way, my wife desires my affection and attention. And if I were to give that affection and attention to someone else in an inappropriate way, there would be a righteous jealousy in her. 
Now, we can take that too far, okay? There are times in a relationship that, that jealousy stretches too far and is controlling, and that's not good. We certainly don't want to get to that point. But there is a, a jealousy between a husband and wife that is righteous, that is good. God, so much more than, looks at his people and he has given us his attention and his affection that he has poured over us in blessing upon blessing, and he desires a response from us. He desires that we would give him attention and affection. And when we don't, there's a jealousy there. But it's a good, it's a righteous jealousy. And it comes not out of selfishness. It, it in many ways, comes out of our desire for us. The best thing that we can do is to put him first in our lives. The best thing that we can do with our time and our energy is to show him affection and attention. And so in his desire for us to focus on him, it's not a selfish thing in that sense. It's a good thing. But he desires what's right. And so he does avenge those that have been victimized. He has wrathful towards sin. He desires that sin be punished, that wrongdoing be punished. It's interesting, though, in the midst of talking about God's jealousy and his vengeance and his wrath and his power and his might, Nahum also says that he is good. He's good. Look there at the end of verse 2. It says, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. And then verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Dropping down to verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. In the midst of talking about his power and his righteousness and his jealousy and his wrath, Nahum is quick to point out that God is good. It's interesting, he says there, it keeps wrath for his enemies. Another way to look at that is he keeps wrath from his enemies. Now, this is not passive aggressiveness, okay? As humans, we get passive aggressive and we keep wrath back and we don't show our true emotions and then later we unleash it all and it's not a healthy thing. But there's a qualifying statement to that, to that phrase that he keeps wrath and it's followed there in verse 3. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He's slow to anger and great in power. God keeping wrath from his enemies, God keeping wrath for his enemies, is not passive aggressiveness, but rather it's patience. It's patience. He doesn't pour out the rightful consequence of evil on people immediately because it's his desire to show grace. We go back to this passage that we have referenced time and again in 2 Peter, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We look at, we're reminded of the passage last week that we referenced in Ezekiel, where God tells the prophet Ezekiel to go to the people and to tell them, I don't delight, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather my desire is that they would turn from their wickedness and live, that they would come to me and find mercy and grace and love. That's my desire. 
And so he is patient with those, even those who do evil. It's why sometimes we look around the world and we're like, why does evil prosper? Why do evil people seem to succeed? David asked the same question in Psalms. Why do the evil continue to prosper? And part of the answer is because God is patient with them, just as he's been patient with us. Certainly he had been patient with Nineveh, this Assyrian empire that had grown their empire on the backs of blood and brutality, and he was patient with them. He sends them Jonah. He doesn't have to do that. He sends them Jonah to warn them, this is not the right way. And for a time, they hear that. For a time, they turn, and God gives them grace and mercy. They turn back, gives them a hundred years about from the time of Jonah to the writing of Nahum. There's about a hundred year span. He gives them time. Even this message, Nahum, it's going to be another 10 to 15 years before these things come true for Nineveh. That was time for them to hear the message and repent. God is patient. He is good. He is merciful. He is kind. He wants those things for you. And he's shown that same patience, that same kindness for us. Micah says, he is righteous, or sorry, Nahum says, he is righteous, he is good, but he is also just. He's also just. That passage in 2 Peter that we just read, it says that he is slow, right? But not as we think of slowness, he's just patient. And then verse 10, though, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. He says there, Peter says there's a time there's a moment when God's ability to remain patient comes up against his justice and his righteousness. And at that point, there's no more time. There's no more time. Going back to verse 7, it says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge. What does it say in verse 8? But an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. You see, God is just. And as a just God, there is coming a day when he will both give consequence and punishment to those that have rejected him, and he will give blessing to those that have come to him in repentance and forgiven and trusted in him. And he will not get it wrong. Our justice system, which is maybe one of the best justice systems in the world, still gets it wrong. At times, we punish those who are innocent, and at times, many times even, we let go those who are guilty. But God, God's justice is not like that. Revelation 20, we get a picture of this justice that's maybe, maybe the most stark. Chapter 20 of Revelation, it says, Then I saw a great white throne with him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Nahum's message here in chapter 1 is that God is righteous, that he is good, and that he is just. And it is good for us to remember that, that one day, that though he is gracious and merciful and loving and patient, that one day his justice will rain down. And we will all, everyone who has drawn breath into their lungs, will stand before the throne of judgment and their lives will be read. All of the things that we have done, all of the things that we have said, all of the things that we have thought are recorded in God's book, in his perfect memory. And those things will be read and they will put on display. And each one of us will recognize in that moment, "Mm, I have fallen short. I've fallen short. I deserve consequence. Praise the Lord that there is one other book. Praise the Lord that he opens the book of life. And for anyone that has come and confessed their wrongdoing and asked for forgiveness and trusted him and said, I'm going to follow you, that there is a book of life. And if your name is written in that, that he gives blessing. Now you say, wait a minute. If he is just, then how can he proclaim we who we've already said are guilty innocent. How can he do that? It's because of what he did on the cross. Jesus comes, lives a perfect life. God in the flesh lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, spills his blood for our, for our wrongdoing. God approves of it. We see the receipt of the payment in the resurrection. And now for those of us that will trust in him, for anyone that will come to Jesus Christ and say, I trust you, I want to follow you. He takes his goodness and puts it on our account. It's like owing a debt and you have an account and there's a, you're, you're in the hole, you're in the red. And then someone comes and they take their bank account, their riches, and they put it in your account. And the debt is paid in full. But in our case, it's not just a debt that is paid. It is a wealth of riches beyond. So that when God looks at the books, he does not see our debt, but rather he sees Jesus' goodness. And he never gets it wrong. At time of justice, he, he will not get it wrong. If, you, if you've just been playing church, but you've never really followed him, he will not get it wrong. If you have given your life to him and, and put your trust in him, but you, like all of us, struggle, you are his and he will not get it wrong. I love what it says here. In verse 7, it says, he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows your name. He knows your heart. He knows your struggles and your grief. And he pulls you in and keeps you. He is good. Nahum, this book of Nahum, is rest on the character of God the righteousness, the goodness, and the justice of God. And what we see in the rest of this chapter, and really the rest of this book, is how God interacts, how he responds both to his enemies and to his people, to the guilty and to the righteous, to the innocent. And so I want to take just just a few more minutes here to look at the rest of this chapter and to see some 
the ways that God responds and the way that he sets up the rest of this book. You see, as we read prophecy, we have to understand two things. And certainly, this is very true with Nahum. Nahum is writing to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel, God's people in this time and in this day and in that specific context. And we can't just shove that aside and ignore it. We need to understand it. We need to understand what God was saying to them. But we also need to understand, and this is sometimes maybe why we don't read Nahum and why we don't read prophets like this, we need to understand that there's a message for us here as well. That there's a truth here for us. And so we're going to do a little comparison contrast, if you remember middle school. A little comparison and contrast time of how God deals with his enemies and his people, both in Nahum's day and for us in this time. So let's start with how he deals with his enemies. How does he deal with his enemies? First, we need to understand that with Nahum, and for today, starting with Nahum, that the enemy was Assyria. We've already, we've already talked about this, but there was a tangible threat. And that tangible threat was just to the northeast of Israel, and its name was Assyria. And they were a conquering people. They were a war-hungry, uh, war bloodthirsty people. And they wanted nothing more than to take Assyria over. That was the enemy. There was no doubt. There was no even second best. Like, this was the threat. We don't don't necessarily have that today. Ephesians tells us in, ver- in chapter 6 that our enemy is not flesh and blood, that it's something different. It's sin. You could include this to include, or you could expand this to include Satan. But Romans, Romans makes it very clear and it personifies sin in such a way that we understand that sin is like a, a brutal dictator Sin is this king that reigns over all humanity humanity, and has his thumb on our hearts and our souls. It is sin that we war against. It is sin that we struggle against. This is the enemy. Not only the enemy of humanity, but the enemy of God. In Nahum's day, we had the enemy of Assyria, and we see their brutal oppression. These weren't people that were satisfied with just going into a village and winning a war. They didn't see war as just some way to expand their kingdom. or They wanted more than that. We have kids in here, so I can't go into everything. But when you read through the chronicles that the Assyrians themselves wrote, when you read the chronicles of those who defeated them, there's no, no surprise that historians look upon the empire of Assyria and they say they may have been the most brutal people in the world. They weren't interested in just conquering. They wanted to torture. They weren't interested in just winning. They wanted to humiliate. They weren't interested in just reigning. They wanted to wipe people off the face of the map. The things that they would do were horrific. It was a brutal oppression. This is what Judah was afraid of. This is what the people of Jerusalem were afraid of. That Assyria would come in and they would do to them what they had done to everyone else. This was their bad dream. Today, our enemy may be sin and we see that great dictator, that horrible 
king, and we see slavery. You go to Romans, you go to Galatians, throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, you see the slavery that we are in under sin, the bondage that holds us, that we're unable to escape sin, we're unable to escape the consequences of sin. And surely when we look around us, we see the brutal oppression that sin has had on our world, that sin has come in and it has overtaken that which God once called good. And now we see disease, natural disaster. Now we see famine. We see war. We see death. We see how it's impacted relationships. Last week in Micah, we looked at how sin impacts our relationships with strangers and neighbors and friends and even family. James says that that lust starts out as a desire of our heart and then it grows into sin, into actions that we know are wrong and then it produces when it flowers and it, and it full comes full bloom, it produces death. Sin is our great enemy. Oh, that we would see sin this way. Believer, I'm speaking to you this morning, that we would see sin as the great enemy, that we would see sin as the horrible dictator that it is, and that we would hate it the way that God hates it, that we would desire to drive it out of our lives, that we would desire to repent of it and to run away from it, that we would desire for it to end in the lives of others as well that they would no longer be held under its thumb. Assyria, its brutal oppression for Nahum, God's response, God's response to this enemy is the end of an empire. He says that in verse 12, he says, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Verse 14, the Lord has given a commandment about you, referring to Assyria. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave, for you are vile. The Lord's response to his enemies, to Assyria, to its brutal oppression, is the end of an empire. And when you look throughout history, and you can see empires rise up, and, and there is a time when they're allowed to do so, and then God says, enough. God is patient with them. He shows grace towards them, but eventually he says, enough. Again, within 10 to 15 years of Nahum writing this, the Babylonians would rise and they would conquer Assyria. It's interesting here as it says, from your house, the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and metal image and I will make your grave for you are vile. The Babylonians, when they destroyed Nineveh, they completely leveled the temple. That was where they focused. They, they destroyed walls. They destroyed palaces and homes. But their greatest destruction was focused on the temple of Assyria, and they leveled it. But they did more than that. Did you catch that it says, I will make your grave? He talks about the, the destruction of the isles. He says, I'll make a grave. This is what the Babylonians did. They took the kings and the princes of Assyria, and what we have found, and what we see in the Chronicles, and what archaeology has even revealed, they they put them to death, and then they threw them in the temple, and then they pulled the temple down on top of them. It was, you trust in these fake gods? This is what your fake gods do for you. You're going to die in their presence. You're going to be buried with them. 
God says, enough. The brutality is done. The evil is done. No longer are my people going to have to fear them. For us today, we have this enemy of sin. We have the oppression of slavery that, it, that controls us. We see the, the darkness of sin in the, in the world around us, war and famine, disease and death. One day God will say, enough. Enough. Praise the Lord. Second Peter, going back to that, says, remember what we just read? It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You turn over to Revelation, another passage that we have read many times. It says that the former things will pass away. In, ver in chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is coming a day, brother and sister, when God will look upon this earth. He will look upon the evilness. He will look upon the sin. He will look upon corruption, and he will say, enough. And there will be a new heaven and a new creation that is perfect, and God will dwell with his people, and it will be perfect. Oh, that we would long for that, that we would anticipate that, the Lord looks at his enemies, and though he gives patience today, though he gives kindness and grace today, there's coming a point when he says, enough is enough. The Lord and his enemies. But Nahum does not end chapter 1 there. Praise the Lord. Nahum ends the chapter by talking about God and his people. He says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who keep your feast, O Judah. In other words, continue to celebrate, continue to worship, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass, pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Talking about Assyria. The Lord responds to his people. For Nahum, it was Israel, right? It was a, it was a nation. It was genetics. He's talking about, for Nahum and his message, he's talking about this group of people at this time. He's saying, peace is coming to you. For us, it's the church. Romans says that we have been grafted into Israel, that no longer are the people of God confined just by blood, by genetics, by family tree. Now the people of God are all who trust in him, all who have faith in him. It's expanded to you and I. We are the ends of the earth. We are the heathen. We are the idol worshipers and the pagans. We are the Gentiles. And God has, in his grace, looked at us and said, I want you. I want you. I want you. He's shown grace to us, mercy to us. This announcement of, of peace and goodness in Nahum's day was through a prophet. Surely, Surely the Holy Spirit descended on Nahum and gave him the message and allowed him to see into the future and give this message to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah specifically. It's through a prophet, through a man. Our message comes from something even better. 
Surely, yes, we have the prophets, we have the law, we have the disciples. But look who gets to declare our message. When he says that, look to the mountains, the feet of the one who brings the message of peace. Look who gets to deliver that message to us. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, what? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a great mult with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among with them. Him He is pleased." Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Oh friend, they had the prophet Nahum declaring peace. We have the angels. We have the host of heaven declaring peace on earth. That's exciting. <laughs> that's, that's huge. As we come to this Christmas season, as we understand the declaration that is made, as Christ enters the world so that he may save sinners, so that we may know peace with God. That's big stuff. For Nahum, it was peace to a nation. It was temporary. And it was select. Right? It was temporary and it was select. It was for this moment, to these people in Jerusalem, peace is coming to you. Assyria will no longer be a threat. Sadly, Israel and Judah would not continue to follow, and there would be a time that peace, that peace would end. The Babylonians would not stop with the Assyrians. Sometime later, the, Assyri- the Babylonians would come and they would level Jerusalem because Jerusalem had failed to continue to follow God. It was temporary. It was select for just the people of Judah. But oh, praise be to God that our message is peace on earth. It's to you and to me, to those that will put their faith in Jesus Christ. He declares peace. And it's not temporary, it's eternal, it's forever. If you will put your faith and trust in him, the peace that he offers, the joy that he offers, the security that he offers is eternal. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, this morning, my hope, my prayer is is that if you listen to this message, first, if you're a believer, that you would be reminded of the goodness of God towards you, that you would be thankful for what he has accomplished in your life, and that you would have your first love. When you first came to Christ, when you first understood his grace, when you first dipped your your body and died to your sins in those baptismal waters and rose again, that you would remember those feelings, that you would remember that commitment, and that you would live in it. As we go through this season of thanksgiving and of worship of Christmas, that people would look at you and go, wow, you really love this time of year. And you would say, darn right, I do. 
Do you know what he did? Do you know what he's done for me? That we would be joyful and excited. I pray this morning that if you're sitting here and maybe you're just living your own life, that you've never really committed to following him, that this morning you would understand that he is good towards you, that he has blessed you, that he, desi- that he has been patient with you, so that you may come to him, that you would understand that that patience is not forever, and that you would not wait till it's too late, but that you would come to him now, that you would know the joy of Christmas, that you would know the, thanks- the thankfulness of thanksgiving, that you would know the message of peace that he has proclaimed to you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have a time of a response this morning. Maybe you're like me this morning, and you just want to jump to your feet and and praise him. Maybe this morning you want to come. Apparently, we're going to hear this sermon again. Maybe this morning you want to, you need to come to the altar and confess. Maybe you need to go to someone else. Maybe you just need to come and find somebody and say, yeah, I want to follow him. What does that look like? Please do that. Jump on that. Don't wait. Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. Lord, what an incredible gift it is that the God of the universe, the all-powerful, the creator, the all-knowing, the just holy God has come and seen fit to know us and to love us and to show us kindness and gentleness. Father, I pray that we would we would rejoice in that, that that would excite us. Father, I pray that we would shout it from the rooftops or that we would allow that joy to fill us every moment. Father, we pray. Lord, help us to respond to you this morning. We ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we